lot of people smarter than me have said from day one that it could only be one thing, a beating. The Blue Book, what is it exactly? It's a fireplace tool that was missing from the Peterson fireplace. Now, we don't believe it was randomly misplaced. And you knew about the porn and the dad was talking with escorts. Dad was cheating on mom. You found another woman at the bottom of the stairs? How could you not tell me? Welcome back to the Staircase Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. In this episode, we're taking a step back from the characters and interpersonal drama of the Peterson family and diving deep into the most important element of the actual case, blood. More specifically, blood spatter evidence and the problematic forensic technique of blood pattern analysis, also known as BPA. In both the documentary and this docudrama, blood spatter at the bottom of the staircase is the single most important factor in what determined that Kathleen Peterson was murdered and what juries believe is reliable science. Hint, it's anything but. Over the past several years, the entire so-called science of BPA has been called into question and even might be considered utterly useless as a tool in determining what actually happened to victims and who did it. To talk more about the problematic forensic study of BPA, I'm here with journalist and lawyer Leora Smith, who has written extensively on the subject for The New York Times and ProPublica. We'll talk about how BPA came to be, how it was integrated into courtrooms across the United States, and why it's so unreliable, and what might be done in the future to prevent its misuse. So, Leora Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. But let's start with Crime Scene 101. What is blood pattern analysis, also known as BPA? Yeah. So BPA is a forensic technique. Um, throughout this interview, I'll refer to it as a technique and not a science for reasons we can get into uh-huh. later. Uh-huh. Um, it is a technique that crime scene investigators use And what people will say is that they can come to a crime scene and look at the bloodstains and patterns left behind. And using those bloodstains, they can reconstruct what happened during the crime. So there's a number of things that analysts will say they can figure out using just the bloodstains. They'll say they can figure out where the perpetrator was standing. They've used it to say whether they think a victim was walking towards the perpetrator or away from the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. People will use it to say whether a defendant was at a crime scene. So often there will be arguments where someone says, oh, I have blood on me because I found a victim and I tried to help them. And the analyst will say, no, based on the patterns, I can tell that actually you were there at the time of the crime. You didn't show up afterwards. It's often also used to figure out whether a crime was a murder or a suicide. Uh So all these many different things that analysts will say they can figure out just from looking at the bloodstains at a crime scene. Okay, so we're going to establish the difference between technique and science in a moment. But I'm curious, how did you start writing about this topic? So I got writing about this topic in 
um, a bit of a strange way. I didn't ever set out to dig into the technique of bloodstain pattern analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, I work as both a lawyer and a writer. And before I was in law school, I worked on documentaries. And while I was in law school, I became very interested in the way we tell stories about the justice system. Mm. So after I graduated, I worked as a research fellow with ProPublica. And I was assigned to work with a really incredible reporter, Pam Koloff, who was looking at the story of a man named Joe Bryan. Joe Bryan was a beloved high school principal um, in Texas who was convicted of killing his wife and maintained his innocence for more than 30 years that he was in prison. Um, The main piece of evidence that put Joe at the crime scene was a flashlight and testimony that was given by a BPA analyst saying that Joe was there the night his wife was murdered, while he always maintained that he was many miles away at a conference. Mm -hmm. Um, What was sort of testified was that he had driven back in the night, killed his wife, and then driven back to the conference in the morning. So I was assigned to work with Pam and sort of do some research into how the legal world looks at bloodstain pattern analysis, how it gets into courtrooms, why it's allowed into courtrooms. And specifically, she was interested in the training of the BPA analyst who testified at Joe's trial. Um, This analyst had taken a 40-hour course learning about bloodstain pattern analysis. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say 40-hour, like 4-0? 40-hour? Okay. Wow. Yes. So this is the basic course that many police officers take to start doing bloodstain pattern analysis. Some people will say, oh, you can never call yourself an expert after only doing the 40-hour course. But this is sort of the first step that many people take. And so Pam asked me to look and see other states and if they were also allowing people with this 40-hour training to testify as experts. So what I started doing was cataloging cases from states all over the country and trying to understand why judges were allowing this evidence in and what sort of analysis they were doing to decide whether this was actually a reliable technique. Because Mm -hmm. in the court system, we're not supposed to allow evidence that's not reliable because it can mislead a jury or a judge. Um, What I started finding when I was looking at these cases was, first of all, that they're being, um, BPA is being allowed in courts across the country. But I started noticing some interesting things. One was that many of the analysts had taken this 40, 40 hour course. <laughs> um, the other one was that judges are supposed to look at whether a technique is reliable, but they weren't really actually analyzing the technique itself. What I found them doing was they would look at what I came to call these markers of reliability. So they would say BPA is reliable because there are national courses in it. BPA is reliable because there's a journal of bloodstain pattern analysis. It's reliable for all these reasons because there's a professional society of bloodstain pattern analysts. So they were looking at all these sort of markers without actually looking at the technique itself. Um, And the last thing that was of note is many of them referred to the same person who is a man named Herbert McDonnell, who sort of, um, we can get into this more, but kind of created the modern practice of bloodstain pattern analysis. And what's interesting about Herb is that he also created these sort of markers of reliability. So Herb sort of created 
the method. Then he created the national courses. Then he created the professional society. And so it was all sort of built on this bed of sand and no one was actually looking at the technique itself. Right. It's like a diet where in order to be on the diet, you have to buy the food. And then the, <laughs> and then the trainers who are on this also, you know, I get it. It's a system that keeps yes. feeding on itself. Yes. All right. The origin story of BPA is shocking um, because, again, it goes back to this perception that it's this rigorous, um, provable science. But tell us about Herbert Leon McDonald. Yeah. So I will say that, you know, for we found cases as far back as the 1800s where people were sort of looking at blood at the scene of a crime and making some inferences about it. You know, you can say, well, the victim was here because here's where all the blood is. So Herb didn't sort of pull this out of uh-huh. a hat. This was something that was happening. But I would say that he's very much the sort of pioneer of the way the technique is practiced today. Um, so who was Herbert McDonald? Um, he lived in upstate New York. He passed away a couple years ago, but I spent quite a bit of time with him before that. Mm. Um, so he lived in a town called Corning and he was a scientist. He had, I believe, a master's degree um, and he studied chemistry. And while he was doing his graduate degree, he, um, I believe he apprenticed or he spent some time working in a forensics lab and he was very interested in forensics. When he finished his degree, he began working as a chemist for Corning Glassware, who make those sort of famous casserole dishes. Of course, Um, yes. That was the town that he lived in. He was working for them. And he was sort of moonlighting as a forensic scientist. Um, Herb actually had quite an extensive laboratory in the basement of his home. And that was where he would do a lot of his forensic work. And what era are we in? Are we in the 1960s? Is it like the sort of dawn of a forensic era or... Yeah, so this would be in the 1960s. Um, And in 1971, Herb got some money from the Department of Justice to write about the experiments he'd been doing with bloodstain pattern analysis. So he was really fascinated in what you could learn using blood at a crime scene. And he did all sorts of experiments. He would do things like dropping blood on different surfaces. So he would drop blood on tile, and then he would drop it on a napkin, and he would take pictures of the way that blood moved on different surfaces. He also would do some um, more gruesome experiments. He talked about experiments where there were dogs that were sick, and so he uh, shot the dogs and killed them and recorded the blood spatter. He later would do experiments where he would um, pour blood into a woman's hair and ask her to shake it around and record the patterns. Uh You know, Herb was a smart person. These experiments, I would say, were maybe kind of fancy high school science experiments. Because he saw himself sort of on the vanguard and needed to do these experiments because plenty of like important science has been invented in a basement by a chemist. But what you're saying is he needed to do these kind of rough experiments because it was like a science that he's developing himself. Yeah. So I think he probably saw himself as starting to catalog what different bloodstains looked like because that didn't exist. So he's saying, you know, if we find a bloodstain on a cotton T-shirt, we should understand a little bit about how blood moves on a cotton Mm T-shirt. So I'm going to go take a dropper and put it on a cotton T-shirt 
and see what happens and start cataloging it. Herb was also an excellent showman. I would talk to people who had been in a courtroom 40 years ago and still remembered sort of the show that he put on. And one of uh, part of his shtick is that he would go to a nearby hospital and have blood taken from his arm and use his own blood in his demonstrations in the courtroom. Wow. So he would say, this is blood that, you know, was we put in a vial this morning and let me show you. And he would drop it on his own shirt and sort of let people watch how the blood moved through the fabric. So he was very good at, um, he was a very convincing witness. People really liked hiring him. In my experience, spending time with him, he speaks very confidently. Uh, he's very sure of what he's talking about. People liked what they were seeing, and he kept getting hired by both prosecution and the defense. Mm-hmm. Um So that was sort of the start. He put out this paper. And in his paper, this is in 1971, um, he sort of says, listen, this is anecdotal evidence. He uses this phrase, though, that um, I think has been debunked that's used by in forensics. It's something like it's correct to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, Uh which doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Um, And so this is what we get from his report in the early 70s. And people like it. It sort of establishes him on the scene. And a few years later, or or maybe sooner, I can't remember exactly how long it took, but he's basically invited by a police department to come in and give a course to their officers, um, teaching them about his methods. And by this time, he's also starting to testify as an expert witness in this area. And he teaches the course and people really like it. Um, And they start talking about it and he starts attending conferences and he sort of builds a business out of running these 40 hour week long courses. So they'll be in a conference center or, you know, a Holiday Inn or sometimes they're on a college campus and police officers from all over come to these courses. And at the end of the course, he gives an exam And he told me that in all the years of teaching, only five people ever failed his exam. Um, So I don't think it was like the most rigorous um, exam. Right. So him saying that five people failed isn't necessarily a testimony to how good the classes are. It's (laughs) how how, how solid the technique is. Right. Okay. Yes. That's how I took it, at least. And and also, you know, Herb would go on to testify again against many of his own students. And I asked Herb about that. And he would sort of say, you know, well, all I can do is teach people the technique and then it's up to them to apply it correctly. But you would think if this was a rigorous science, that would raise some alarm bells. It's kind of just from the outside. It's not hard to see why BPA would be popular. Or, you know, you look at Dexter or even like as far back as Sherlock Holmes. And it seems like, okay, if you follow the logic of physics of where something can can launch and spray, then that tells us something. But then you take a step back, and I think what you're saying is, no, it's completely open to interpretation. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's impossible to tell things um, about maybe what occurred based on the bloodstain. What the critiques from the National Academy of Science and um, scientists who I spoke to were that the people who are doing this analysis – don't have the skills or education to do it in a way that would make it more reliable and accurate. The way that the technique is taught has some major issues. So even, for example, what you're saying, 
um, one of the things people do is, you know, try and figure out where the shooter was standing yeah. sort of based on the spatter. And if people have seen Dexter, there's this really beautiful scene in Dexter where he's in this white room yeah. and he has these red threads <laughs> and, you know, yeah. he pulls the thread back from the hole in the wall and where the threads converge, you know, that's where the shooter was. And based on that, we know, was he standing? Was he kneeling? Um, when I talked to someone who was a who was a scientist, he worked specifically in fluid dynamics, he said, you know, these are very oversimplified models. So fluids don't move in a straight line. Um, there's gravity. Gravity right. is not accounted for. There's the weight of the fluid, which let's say there's some flesh mixed with the fluid. Mm. There's the amount of fluid. All of these things impact the trajectory. So he said, if you just pull back and use a straight line, you're really going to insert a lot of inaccuracy into your calculations. So back in 2002, when the Kathleen Peterson murder case was first tried and Michael Peterson was on trial, um, at that time, blood evidence was considered valid. It's valid science. They had experts, dueling experts, describing how it could happen, how it couldn't have happened. But you mentioned in 2009, that changes when the National Academy of Science sort of comes out with this statement. Let's talk about that, what happens in 2009. Sure. And I'll just say off the bat, in 2009, I would say things should have changed. I don't know that they did change. Okay. Um, so the National Academy of Science, basically, this was a large um, effort. There had been concerns raised about a number of forensic techniques from bite mark evidence to... Um, arson, the way people look at um, figuring out whether a fire yeah. was arson, all sorts of forensic techniques that had been called into question. So a, a sort of task force was brought together that included um, lawyers, it included scientists, it included sort of all the people from professions that touch on forensics um, to look into sort of which techniques are legitimate and in which ways they're legitimate and any concerns that there should be about different techniques. And so they had a section on bloodstain pattern analysis. And the conclusion was basically, yes, there are things that you can tell. Um, a person who's conducting bloodstain pattern analysis should have a good understanding of things like um, mathematics, physics, fluid dynamics, you know, which many experts who are so-called experts who are practicing this don't have a huge familiarity with those areas of study. Mm -hmm. um, they say that the uncertainties involved um, with the conclusions of bloodstain pattern analysts are, I think they use the word enormous. Um, and they say that a lot of analysts are sort of, uh, their analysis is going far beyond what can actually be supported by science. So the big concern is that these are not reliable conclusions because the analysts don't have the education that they would need to make reliable conclusions, but they're still sort of, despite not actually having the information or understanding they need, they are still making these huge conclusions. And as a result, they're just not reliable. So what happens when, say, a police officer who is maybe sent by his um uh, his advice, his supervisor to get some training for blood pattern analysis so that when he comes to a crime scene, he can maybe, you know, assess something the first he's first on the scene. What's the problem with a cop getting that 40 hour training certificate? 
I mean, I don't know that there's any problem with someone getting the training certificate. What I, when I've spoken with some other people who work in forensics or scientists who sort of touch on forensics, they say, listen, it's good to have people sensitized to the fact that maybe you can tell something from these patterns and therefore maybe it's a good idea not to disrupt them. Maybe it's a good idea to take photos of them. I think in any field, if you have someone who doesn't have a full understanding of a field and then comes in and starts making conclusions as if they do have a full understanding, it's very likely that their conclusions are going to be wrong, or at the very least, we can't rely that their conclusions are right. Often these analysts are brought in to cases where people are sort of really unsure, um, there's a lack of evidence, And so you bring in an expert and it sort of feels like it's tying this bow on the evidence. It sort of gives it this sheen of certainty. Right. And, you know, experts talk with a lot of confidence. And so the concern is that if they don't actually have the certainty that they're projecting, then juries and judges are making decisions um, based on really misleading evidence. In the staircase, there's this analyst named Dwayne Deaver, and he works for the prosecution And he employs what you might call some questionable tactics trying to prove that Michael killed his wife. Yes. Basically, Deaver runs test after test after test until he gets the favorable result he wants and ignores all the other times he fails. So is Deaver unique? Because it sounds like, according to your research, you found other cases that were also deeply problematic. I mean, I think it should be concerning to everyone that throughout the country, people are testifying about things that they don't actually know and saying that they know them. There's been very few efforts to sort of understand the error rate of bloodstain pattern analysis. How often are people getting it right? But there was um, at least one that I found by um, people who work in sort of the blood spatter industry. Um, And they did blind testing. So they sent around uh, sort of scenarios that they had set up so they knew the right answer to many analysts to sort of gauge the industry. And on some of these questions, as many as 25% of people answered wrong. So that's one in four people. So, you know, what if you're the person who's the defendant in a trial and you get the one who's getting it wrong. And they're saying it so confidently. And the problem is, you know, in in these cases, when they sent out the scenarios, the person had set them up and was able to say, oh, no, you got it wrong. If there's a murder and nobody was there, um, we're never going to know that that analyst is overconfident in their conclusions. Um, so, So I think it should be very concerning to all of us. It sounds like from what you're saying about Dwayne Deaver, you know, it's very easy to look at him and say, oh, here's a a bad apple, but the rest of it is fine. And maybe not everyone is is as egregious. Not everybody is sort of fabricating results. But the result is the same, which is that potentially someone is convicted for a crime that they didn't commit. Um, This is so interesting. Like, fascinating. What I find even more interesting is that you were able to sort of meet the man himself, Herb McDonald, and he starts this cottage industry. It, it kind of sp- spreads into something that becomes a legitimate technique that's recognized in our court system. And you have an opportunity to connect with Herb before he, the end of his life. So what was his take 
as an older man who can now reflect on his legacy, what did he have to say about blood pattern analysis and what's wrong and what's right with it? My um, experience with Herb is that he was extremely proud of the work that he did. Um, It's interesting when I asked him sort of what his proudest moment was, it was a particular case where he helped with the exoneration of a woman who had been convicted of a murder, which, you know, is quite interesting when you think um, of potentially the number of wrongful convictions that result from forensics, that sometimes forensics is also able to help exonerate people. And he was very proud of that. He was very proud of all the people who he had taught. Um, But at the same time, he would talk about how some people were terrible at it and some people were charlatans and that it was sort of up to judges to keep the bad people out of their courtrooms. So I wouldn't say that he took any responsibility for the fact that some of these experts who he may have called charlatans were either um, his students or students of his students. I believe actually that Dwayne Deaver was taught by a student of Herb's. One person said to me, you know, um, sort of everyone in this industry is only a a couple degrees removed from Herb. And I think that he would have taken a lot of pride in that. Right. And so he's saying, I've just I've provided the tools, what people decide to do with those tools and their interpretation and influence is up to them, Mm -hmm, which is kind of problematic when you look at it and try and consider legitimate science, because it shouldn't Mm -hmm. actually matter who is behind the analysis or the experiment, which gets us back to interpretation. Um, Something that is really stunning in the documentary series and then later on in the HBO Max series is seeing just how different the perspectives on what happened can be. And so we have one side that's saying she bled out, it was murdered, she was She was bludgeoned. This is how it all happened. There's stuff on the ceiling. And there's the other camp that is, again, working for the defense that's saying this is how it could have happened. And and there are these narratives that are really complex and almost like factual jujitsu trying to find a way to make it all work. It's about who in the courtroom, which expert can tell the better narrative, the more believable Mm -hmm. story. Again, this is something that really happens in this story. Like, What is truth? What really happened? We don't know. But we're almost attracted to the version, the expert who has the story that we we decide to believe sounds more plausible. Yeah, this is a tricky question because really much of the legal system is built around who can tell a better narrative, not just the experts. You know, do you like the prosecution's story or do you like the defense's story? Um, You know, the lawyers for both sides are going to spend a lot of time on their opening arguments, which lay out the narrative that they hope will stay in your head. And if one of them is a better storyteller, you know, maybe you're drawn to it. And it's also a concern when it comes to forensic experts. They're going to be drawn to that, especially when they're in this very overwhelming very scary situation where they're being asked to choose a person's fate and you're looking for someone who can give you some certainty so that you don't go home and feel stressed about whether you made the wrong decision. So I think it's it's narrative, it's the person who's telling the story. Um, all of these things come up when it comes to a forensic expert for sure. 
so despite this sort of contemporary perception that more than ever we're relying on evidence and forensic science to determine whether or not someone is innocent or guilty, it sounds like fundamentally it is still about spinning the narrative. Yeah, I think if this was a science and it always came out with the same answer, then we could say, you know, oh, look, science is answering questions for us about crimes. But given that it's possible to have two experts who say completely different things, then I think we have to say that really we're relying on forensic narratives more so than forensic science. Is there any type of movement to try and push these techniques and the pseudoscience out of the court system? Or is it just kind of stuck there despite evidence that it's not the most reliable way of assessing a crime? Yeah, I think there's a real challenge in the legal system because of the way our legal system is set up, which in some ways is very oppositional to science. Um, The way that court cases are decided is based on precedent. So judges look back at what other judges have done, and they have to make their decisions so that they sync up with and build on past judges' decisions. Judges are allowed to break from precedent, but generally, you are supposed to adhere to it. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's been so hard to get these techniques out of the court system. Let's say that we progress to a place where some of these questionable practices are removed from the courts. What are we left with? DNA and witness testimony? I mean, that's a huge question about, you know, what is a system of justice that we want uh, in the world that we live in, you know, do we think that people should go to jail for crimes? Do we think that, you know, we want police? These are all questions that I think our society is grappling with. Right. And sometimes the answer is hard. It would be much nicer if someone could come in and say, science tells me this person did it and it tells me that they should go to jail for this long and then we will all live happily together. Unfortunately, you know, our craving for those easy answers has led to some big problems. So what are we left with is a question that I think we have to decide together as a society. Are we happier allowing pseudoscience in our courts or would we be happier to have a tough conversation about what we do once that's no longer allowed? Well, it has been... A really informative conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Lyra Smith. I really appreciate your time. And I think it's going to get a lot of people thinking, especially people who follow true crime, thinking about everything they see in the criminal justice system that's presented to them as so-called science and reevaluate how we look at innocence and guilt. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Now, writing an original series pulled directly from one's own imagination is hard enough. But when a series is actually based on recent historical events, there's a whole different level of accuracy and fidelity to the facts that's expected. And you might be tempted to think, there's a 13-hour-long documentary that seemingly covers every square inch of this story. What more could be out there? The answer is a lot. And that's where the production's researcher, Michael Matthews, comes in. Michael Matthews, thank you so much for joining us on the official companion podcast to The Staircase. Great. Thanks. It's exciting to be here. I am utterly fascinated by your role because it's one of those things that is the underpinning of this entire series. 
but nobody would know that except you're here now on this podcast. So, Michael, help us understand what a researcher does on a series like this. Uh, a researcher basically is somebody who can't make anything up. Um, and that was very important with this series because it's a true crime series. Um, and I think that uh, the, the story was so fascinating in its true form. The more we delved into it, the more rabbit holes that were to follow. And it was also good since the documentary had been made about the defendant and the prosecution and their contemporaries. The documentary doesn't get too deep into the documentary itself. So it was important to sort of look at who were the documentarians, what was their relationship with Michael Peterson, with the prosecution, with David Rudolph. And then since the story had evolved so much since 2003, there were different theories as to what might have happened. Yeah. Those are not so much captured in the documentary. So it was sort of important to get an oral history, but also to do some forensic fact-checking. Well, Michael, I'm going to get into all of the people that you spoke with over the course of putting the docudrama together. But first, walk me through what happens. Does the phone ring and it's Antonio Campos on the phone and he's like, we need you to research and basically reinvestigate this whole case from a narrative perspective. What What's the entry point for you in a project like this? The only thing I knew about the staircase was my roommate in college saw the staircase in his mid-20s and abandoned a pretty good career as a documentarian to become an attorney. Wow. Um, I didn't know I didn't know the beginning, middle, or end of the story at all. And uh, the first thing was watching the documentary itself. Um, but you're right, it was basically like a phone call in the middle, I think, of January, asking if I wanted to work with Antonio, whom I hadn't met before. So you have been a researcher on other television projects, or is your background in journalism? Um, so it, I started basically um, in uh, doing basically what I guess would be called science writing uh, for a foundation, and then worked in publishing um, as a researcher. And then through those channels, became basically a series researcher um, with an emphasis increasingly, it seems, on true crime. So you, you get the call. You're being asked to research a thoroughly well-documented documentary series for a docudrama top to bottom. You're basically the, uh, the Ron Jurette of this whole series, who Ron Jurette was the original investigator in the actual Staircase documentaries. Where do you start? You watch the documentary, and then what? Antonio, I would say, was the Ron Jurette for at least 10 years so far as thinking about how this could be a series. Um, so what's exciting is when you speak to somebody like Michael and you hear him tell something that you haven't heard before, you know, having read his books or seen interviews. Wait, let me just before we before we I just need to hit the pause button. You spoke with Michael Peterson and he told you something you no one's ever heard before. The, I'm not I'm not saying that these are, you know, uh, oh, my gosh, we suddenly solved the case. I understand. Um, when you get this sort of a sense of. Uh, enough of a level of trust that the interviewee feels that they're being listened to and um, isn't being judged. Uh -huh. And I think it's important when you're researching not to basically have a preconceived idea of, of what happened. You know, you're trying to giving people the confession booth, you know, what, it, what happened? How did you feel about it? Um, 
and people will open up uh, much more so than I think they would open up if they're speaking publicly, even though they know that what they tell me eventually is going to probably filter into the public space at some point. It could be a little bit creepy, honestly. Um, sometimes you feel like since these people are, are private citizens other than the documentary that you're finding things about their personal lives that um, are sensitive. So you try to respect that. I mean, I have the perfect example right here from episode three, which is Martha Ratliff, who's the youngest sibling. And in the docuseries, uh, which we didn't see so much in the documentary, was an exploration of her sexuality and how she was potentially self-identifying as queer in the series. Was that something that what you explored with her in a conversation or is this was this gleaned in another way i think i sent an email at some point or i made an attempt to contact her and she wasn't interested in speaking it, it's something that came up in conversations with with other family members i think she was in a newsletter at some point it was basically enough in the public sphere that we felt that it wasn't something that was uh intended by her to be kept from other people um and i think the reason why it wasn't in the documentary itself was it didn't really have a well that's subjective it was a decision by the documentarians basically not to show um then there's a lot that the documentary doesn't get into about the personal lives of the of the children there's, there's so much to uncover in this conversation and i think the thing that i really appreciated uh and i think viewers will too is in previous episodes we get to really see the family the whole family the peterson family together in that dynamic together um, and that includes the siblings. That includes one of the most critical figures in the whole saga and in real life is Kathleen Peterson herself. How did you go about getting information about her and what she was like potentially to bring a character that Tony Collette brings to life on screen? There, there was so much about the, the family that I thought was relatable, um, and, I, and I'm speaking more as just sort of an observer, not so much as just as a researcher, that I thought that empathy was a very important piece to this, that this was a family that was going through, um, you know, an adolescence for the kids, you know, young adulthood later on. So we're seeing a family sort of grow over, I guess, 15 years. Kathleen was sort of, um, I think it was very important to make sure that Kathleen uh, although her voice wasn't going to be um, available, you know, to us to sort of hear what she was like as a person and hear hear about it from people who knew her um, as neighbors and as colleagues. And I think that everyone in the room really uh, felt an emotional connection that Kathleen was sort of the absent hero in this story, that she was the one who emotionally brought the family together. Um and it's it's uh, amazing. The first conversation I had, I think, or second, was with David Rudolph. And um, I, I like speaking with David. David likes talking about this case. Um, and that was uh, that was special to hear him sort of open up about in a colorful sort of way, you know, the saga. David Rudolph is, of course, Michael Peterson's lawyer and has been even all these years later really emotionally connected to the family um, and the outcome of these cases. So David is able to basically talk about the family and talk about the case 
in a very storytelling way that he's comfortable with, um, while also respecting the, uh, the the confidentiality agreement he has as an attorney with Michael. David told me um, that David Rudolph had met Kathleen actually a few years before um, her death. Uh, Michael and Kathleen and Todd had met with David Rudolph in the earlier mid nineties and spoke with David about coming on as to be an attorney for Clayton Peterson, um, the oldest to represent him in the uh, case, which you do not hear about in the documentary, but you will hear about in the uh, HBO series. Okay. I am just so intrigued by all of these connections. They'd already met David Rudolph. And then Kathleen Peterson was the first female engineering student to ever go to Duke, which is where Clayton, the prodigal son, was also going when something seriously derails his life. And you are right. There are lots of things that people will understand later in this series were never, ever shown in the documentary. Also in the documentary, we only ever see these kids as these unflagging, supportive figures who are deeply devoted to their dad. But what I like about here is they're allowed to question the story he's telling them and even argue amongst themselves about his guilt or innocence. It's a much richer, more complicated, more human dynamic. And so when you're interviewing all of these people, how do you bring this treasure trove of stuff, including all the nuances and complex personalities and dynamics, back to the writer's room for them to turn into an actual script? You try to be economical. Um, you try to basically cut right to what was the what was the image. So, for an example, Kathleen, I spoke with a good friend of hers and a colleague of hers from Nortel, and you know, Kathleen would do things like buy Dilbert um, toys for her, you know, middle managers. Uh, she would, uh, you know, make references to Picasso or Renaissance art when trying to talk about incredibly complicated, boring IT concepts at conferences. She would, you know, raise a toast, like, let's just celebrate this moment. So there was a wonderful carpe diem quality to her while also being a very hardworking um, and very successful uh, executive at this corporation. You know, what were they like is something that you can sort of get across in a series like this. A little bit trickier with a documentary. Did you ever ask about Michael and Kathleen's relationship? Um, it was something that David really dove into pretty quickly when I spoke with him. He said, I was so impressed hearing about this wonderful marriage that Michael and Kathleen had. I was, I think he said I was frankly jealous. Um, it was, it sounded like the perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. I think that was an interesting trajectory to this. And I don't think you get that quite in the documentary as much. Um, you're not really sure, is this David's personal feeling or is this part of his uh, strategy for um, Michael's defense? I think, I think it actually was quite more personal than, than you realize in the documentary. So it was interesting to hear that um, in his own words, speaking with him one-on-one. -on -one. How do you balance facts and then put those into a compelling narrative, composite characters, things that just have to be moments that have to be an express train just to get through to the next episode. Um, is that something that you had to think a lot about? Well, for, fortunately, eight episodes isn't quite an express train. You, ha you have latitude to let it breathe. You know, um, 
I, I could just listen to Michael, you know, for, for hours. I think he's a great storyteller. He likes telling stories. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people, you know, personally outside his family, you know, admire him and like him. He's a novelist. Uh, it also hurt him very badly with this. Freda Black said, how can you believe anything he says? He's a novelist. Mm-hmm. And sort of uh, at one point in the trial, he makes things up for a living. I think it I think it made people less likely to believe him. Right. It's a double edge because it worked in his favor. But he was a captivating subject for a documentary series and a, a TV drama. But at the same time, it's distrustful when some of these things seem too smooth and too practiced. And in fact, there's a moment in the HBO series where... He, the filmmakers ask him to repeat something that he said or to like do this thing again and he does and it seems like in that moment it's trying to show that not everything in a documentary is spontaneous and as it in raw it's by nature something of a performance david rudolph told me that he liked michael as a person and that comes across in the documentary david also told me Nothing Michael ever told me I ever found out to not be true. And it was something I had to replay in my head a few times. What does that mean exactly? Nothing Michael ever told me I ever found out to not be true. (laughs) And I took that to basically mean that as far as his fact-checking with Ron, Michael's stories seem to check out. The only person who sort of has living firsthand knowledge of what happened that night in that house is Michael. Um, and you know, in Michael's telling, he doesn't really even know what happened because he was outside when, when the death occurred on the staircase. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Now, um, you meet with David Rudolph, then what are the circumstances where you're introduced and you get a sit down with Michael Peterson? And is it just you? Is it you and some of the team? How does that, just for those of us who are on the outside kind of imagining this in our, in our heads, what does it look like? My job was a lot easier than it would have been otherwise um, because during COVID, I didn't have to go see anybody in person because Uh this was in spring 2020. Nobody had a vaccine. People had tons of time on their hands. So a phone call that normally would have been a half hour ended up being three hours. So I think that the need to tell was there with some people. Sometimes Michael, you know, would sort of anticipate a question even before it was asked. So that could be a little bit frustrating feeling like we were sort of talking with someone who had been through these questions so many times over the years. I, I never got a Kaiser Soze vibe from Michael. I never got the feeling that he was a puppet master who was totally in control of, of you know, the master storyline. Um, I mean, he's not an open book by any means. He's really just a person who's trying to balance his, his personal private with his public life. And so much of his personal and private life are now in the public, and he's trying to preserve, you know, other pieces, especially his family. He was always very protective of his family, and he also was very adamant that his family, basically, especially his kids, were were over it. That basically, um, the, the documentary had been made. They didn't want to basically jump back in. Although some of them did end up speaking with us, you know, on their own. The way you're describing Michael Peterson, it almost sounds like when you're trying to interview a celebrity and you're trying to find that thing that hasn't been asked a million times before, just so that you can get like something new, something real. And I think that's the challenge for this particular story. This saga has been told so many times and you have to find a way to present something that's richer and deeper than they've ever seen or heard before. So that when people watch this series, they're like, oh, this isn't just a retelling of a documentary. 
Speaking of the documentary, I'd love to know, did you ever get a chance to talk to Jean-Xavier? And were there any moments that you can share with us? I really enjoyed speaking with Jean. Jean is not, you know, an advocate for Michael's defense. Jean is a, an objective documentarian, is, or at least tries to be. I mean, nobody's purely, you know, 100% objective, obviously. But um, he said that I gave up a long time ago trying to discover whether Michael was innocent or guilty. Um, I don't know huh. what happened that night. Was the production ever able to get in to see the real staircase? It's, it's a very, very treacherous spot. I was on the phone call, you know, with a, after being able to get a, a, an art director person to take a look at the real staircase. Um, she said, these staircases are an accident waiting to happen. It's remarkable that they were code. It was a building built in the 40s. I don't think the staircase was intended for the um, future owners of the house to use. It seemed like it was more something for, you know, sadly, you know, a housekeeper or a cook or something to go up and down. Um, there wasn't oh. a lot of thought or care put into these, as opposed to the front of the house, which has a beautiful, yes. much more elegant staircase. So we we may not understand how how treacherous it is until you actually did the measurements. I, I helped coordinate. I helped coordinate it. I didn't. I didn't go in myself. Yeah. Of course, of course, I understand. But your research included getting the actual measurements, so that what we see in the series is real. Well, true to life. True to life. True to life. True to life and real are two things that I think are we're going to keep circling because it's hard to know what's real when we're talking about a lot of this subjective stuff anyway. Now, so something that I've never seen and I've only seen either depicted in the documentary itself or in the series, which was very deftly handled, are the actual autopsy photos. Did you have access to a lot of anything that like the her photos other things that we wouldn't have been privileged to see in your research? Yeah, I wouldn't use the word privilege so much, but I know I think I know what you mean. Uh, the, the sort of additional information that the audience didn't mm -hmm. have at their disposal. Access. Access. Yeah, we, we did look at them. Um, we were able to basically look at a lot of what was in the prosecution's file um, and a bit of the defense's file. Um, and then as this case evolved in 06, new findings, which were in the prosecutor's file, also became available. I think that I probably had the hardest time with the photos of, of anything in my work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's probably good that the documentary doesn't show them. Um, the, I, I thought it was rather respectful the way it was depicted in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I know the family members don't like to see the the photos, you know, in books or in, or in film. Um, you do sort of, though, have to look at them to sort of get an idea of what these people are talking about. So it sort of comes with sort of responsibility, I think. Well, and it was so pivotal for her sister, for Candace and for her daughter. It seems like those photos and the amount of blood seemed to be so pivotal for their decision. Or am I... Am I just telling the narrative that I heard in the documentary? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I, I think that it's the Pandora's box was the family was learning that Michael was having extra marital relationships or extra marital sex with people mm -hmm. other than Kathleen, um, which was shocking to them uh, in December. And then within days, they're seeing the photographs, the autopsy photographs of, um, of Kathleen losing trust in Michael and then seeing how gruesome the photos were had to have a huge impact on, on yeah. their decision. Um, 
because as far as I know, their judgments did change within a few days. They went from seeing Michael as likely innocent to likely guilty yeah. um, to to the point where they were, they were cooperating with the, the prosecution um, right. and doing interviews about the case saying that they thought he was guilty. All right. Speaking of the children, in the series, we see the youngest son, Todd, really seem to shoulder a lot of the burden until he just can't take it any longer and has to step away. Can you tell us anything more about that? Todd is at a difficult time. How did did Todd basically uh, go from being Michael's centurion, you know, guardian angel, to having to build a life for himself? You know, what, what time did he miss in his own life, in his own adolescence, because he kind of had to take care of his dad? from yes. you know, 2002 to 2003. Clayton certainly had a hard time, but Clayton at least, you know, was in a relationship with his now wife, um, had a life of his own in Baltimore, was able to kind of step into adulthood with without the, the same burdens, I think, that Todd did. Uh, you, you sort of get a sense that he is trying to build his own identity separate from this story. In the series, Martha at one point tells her father that There's no room for her. She's exploring herself and her sexuality. She wants to come out and share her life with him. But there's just no room for her. No room for any of his kids, actually, to share anything with their dad, because it's always about dad and his shit. But eventually, even that changes, right? I think he probably had to realize, or the family certainly realized, that he was no longer the the special project that everybody had devoted so much time to taking care of. They kind of had to move on with their lives. Um, Michael no longer being the center of attention, no longer being in, you know, a documentary every day. That's something we don't really see so much in the documentary, but there's a huge opportunity for the series to sort of take the camera back beyond the camera and say, you know, what happens to a person after they're no longer in this privileged spotlight? Um, you know, other family members have to deal with their own stuff. Does is does he have a capacity in him to, you know, listen to them in the same way that they listen to him? Well, once again, thank you so much. I, I incredible work. And 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 talk about thank sort you. of the hidden hidden hero. I am putting you right in there in terms of the work that you've done that is so crucial to getting the story accurate, which I didn't realize mattered so much to the filmmakers until our conversation. It's true. It's true. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Leora Smith and Michael Matthews for joining us today. Creator and showrunner Antonio Campos returns next episode along with a new voice from the writer's room, Emily Kazmarak. We'll also speak with actor Michael Stuhlbarg, who portrays defense attorney David Rudolph. That episode drops along with the next episode of The Staircase on Thursday, May 12th. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios and David Urzua at Studio Awesome. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Fibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Yuryans. Legal by Diana Palacios. A special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios. And a very special thanks to you 
our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you like the show and you have a minute, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream this podcast on HBO Max. See you next episode.